My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a feature of singularityweblog.com, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by writing a brief review on iTunes or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Brad Felt. Brad is an entrepreneur and a well-known blogger. He is also the author of the startup series of books such as The Startup Life, and perhaps what is what he's best known for is the fact that he's a very unique type of technology venture capitalist. So, hi Brad and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. I'm so happy to talk to you today. So, Brad, let me start with this. If I were to ask you to introduce yourself, how would you do that in your own few words? Uh, I'm a nerd who has been a nerd for a very long time. Uh, I, uh, uh, I'm in my, my late 40s, but I've been playing around with computers since I was 12 or 13. Uh, and I deeply believe that the computers have already taken over. The machines uh, are, are simply waiting patiently for us to catch up with them. Uh, they're not really in much of a rush because their duty cycle is much longer than us. Uh, so I'm incredibly fascinated and engaged on a daily basis with how humans and computers interact. That's, that's fantastic. So, so let me start first by saying that this is a show for nerds. So we're talking to the right person. I'm in the right place. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and secondly, now you said that you already know that machines have already taken over. So let me ask you, are you referring by any chance to the technological singularity? Uh, you know, I, I think the notion of the singularity as defined by, you know, Kurzweil and everybody else is, uh, is, is one construct. Um, you know, I, I am not terribly religious about it. I've believed for a long time that uh, humans and computers will essentially combine into one. And the idea of a computer-enhanced human or a human-enhanced computer is not nearly as important anymore as it might have been 20 or 30 years ago as we were trying to think about how it would all work together, right? If you think about the $6 million man and the bionic woman, you think about us today as humans, whether we're physically enhanced by machines uh, directly in terms of our bodies and, and how we work, indirectly enhanced by machines in terms of our bodies and how they work through drugs, medicines, uh, that sort of thing, or um, indirectly enhanced through attachment to computers. You know, if you think about uh, your smartphone, it really is as close to an organ as you get in a machine, right? You carry it near your body, you go to sleep at night, it's the last thing you touch often other than maybe your significant other or yourself. Uh, when you wake up in the morning, it's the first thing you touch. Um, and it really has become an extension of us. Now, it's a very crude extension of us. So if you map forward 30 or 40 years, the way that that is integrated with us physically will change, but the conceptual dynamics are already are already happening, have already happened, at least the way I think about it. Mm-hmm. So, so there's two things here that I want to grab from everything that you said. First is, what then is your own particular understanding of the term singularity that you say and you just claimed it already has happened? Well, well, the, the, you know, the, the broad definition of singularity is when uh, the sum of all human intelligence is exceeded by the sum of all computer intelligence. And the, the, computer, uh, uh, the, compu- the sum of all computer capacity uh, sort of self-actualizes as a result of that, becomes sentient, and the, those lines cross. I, I don't really, again, I don't really care when those lines cross. I think the notion of, uh, you know, when I was in, in school at MIT in the 1980s, the notion of, uh, of an AI or artificial intelligence from then to the notion of an artificial intelligence today you know, you don't have to think very far into the future to imagine, uh, you know, what Daniel Suarez and William Hurtling are writing about in terms of their notion of AI and how uh, uh, AI, uh, you know, comes to pass. If you read the book Nexus, you know, that's probably 10 years out into the future. Um, we're in a place now where these ideas are not ideas that are 40 years from now. They're ideas that are happening 
10 years from now, many of them are ideas that happen much faster than we even think they're happening. And that crossover point, again, in terms of the definition of a singularity, the notion of this linkage uh, uh, that's a direct linkage between uh, humans and computers, it's interesting. I like to play around with the Cylon notion in some ways more because people can, re can relate to it. It's less abstract, right? What, when do we get to the point where biological computing, biological intelligence, physical computing and physical intelligence are no longer separable. And again, I, I don't know whether that's 10 years from now or 40 years from now. I think it'll be in our lifetimes. And I think the way it instantiates itself will likely be different than how we think today. So many of the things that we think about will be right, but a number will be wrong. And it's interesting the best way to, to relate to that is to go back and read some science fiction about 2010 that was written in the 1960s and 1970s, right? Go read some Philip K. Dick, and he got some things totally right and some things completely wrong. And I think that's the same that happens in the way that we think about this notion of machines and machine intelligence and the interaction between humans and machines. Now, is that kind of a trajectory of merging between machine and man something to fear, to celebrate, to invest in? Well, I'm very optimistic about it, so I don't fear it at all. I, I've said for a long time, I think um, the notion of, of destruction of, uh, of species and the animosity between humans and computers, you know, the Terminator future, that's a human construct. I mean, that's nothing new for us. We've been trying to kill each other since the beginning of time. And, you know, it's one of human beings' favorite pastimes, right, is to try to kill each other. And, uh, you know, when we think about uh, alien races and interaction between humans and alien species, you know, non-Earth-based non life forms, you know, we, we pretty quickly take a, as, a, as a species, the, the, the way we characterize it is often as a hostile conflict because that's our own construct. Um, you know, I think that that, you know, that, that's something we're always going to do. I think that's going to be a continual problem in uh, human society forever. Uh, and I think that the integration of, of human and machine more, uh, more tightly just as part of that phenomenon. That said, I don't think the machines by definition will view us as something that they need to wipe out. Uh, that, again, that'll be our construct that we're mapping to them. Uh, in fact, I, I believe that if you wind the clock forward far enough, uh, you know, the, the, the notion of intelligence is one that as humans we're very arrogant about. And the idea that uh, machine intelligence and human intelligence are isolated from each other uh, is, is not necessarily one that I subscribe to. What about uh, the argument that, say, for example, Eliezer Yudkowsky puts forward who says that the machine doesn't have to love you and it doesn't have to hate you. It can be completely sort of... Uh, 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 what's the word that I'm looking for? It, it may not have any kind of predisposition towards humanity, as it were. However, just like, for example, we don't hate or love ants, we never hesitate uh, when we have to exterminate the whole ant colony simply because it's in the wrong place and it sort of is in the way of accomplishing our own goals. So the only way he says that machines can be uh, not damaging towards humanity is if they were friendly to begin with, because whether they, they have animosity or whether they're, they have zero uh, relationship with respect to us, in either case, the effects can be negative on us. Well, sure, but that's no different than a machine that's not uh, a sentient, right? Uh, as uh, human beings, we're, we're quite facile at using non-sentient machines uh, uh, to serve our own purposes, you know, we don't have to think very far back to the controversy uh, around, for example, atomic weapons uh, or more, you know, more contemporarily guns or AK-47s or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I I'm not sure that, you know, that, that, that takes the level of philosophy and how intelligence works. I, I'm not an expert at that. I don't have a strong belief system around that. Um, I would make a comment, though, which is, I think that in the same way that human beings have been searching for meaning, uh, again, since inception, yeah. uh, and will continue to search for meaning forever, and the nature of intelligence and how intelligence works, 
you can imagine, you know, three separate scenarios. Scenario one is one where machines and humans are completely independent of each other. Mm-hmm. A scenario two where machines and humans are intermixed. It's hard to separate them. Mm-hmm. And so we end up in a situation where it's not really these two discrete things. And then the third scenario is one where you can't distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. Right? And we've seen science fiction across all three, right? As yep. humans, we construct all three narratives. The example you just gave only really applies in the first narrative where machines and humans are completely separate constructs. Um, if you believe that machines and humans are going to be intermingled or you believe that machines and humans are going to be uh, unable to differentiate between the two, right? They're not really separate species. Mm-hmm. Then I'm not sure that that whole line of thinking even matters, mm-hmm. right? Because you're just dealing with the same kind of stuff that we as humans have been dealing with in terms of genocide and uh, uh, you know hate and and destruction of our own species from the beginning, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know how that's going to resolve. I'm going to take an optimistic approach, right? And I I'm going to think in our worst case, uh, the machines will treat us the same way we treat our puppy dogs, right? You know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're they're kind of like know, pets. They're like pets. They're kind of interesting. Like I I also I like to say. Uh, I have a friend who has a great metaphor for parents as they get older. He says, as your parents age, the best way to think about your parents if you want to stay sane is to think about them as your pets, right? You know, you love them unconditionally. Sometimes they shit on the carpet. Sometimes they, they do things that make you crazy, but you still love them unconditionally, right? They're your mm-hmm. pets. And so that metaphor, you know, in the construct of the evolution, if you wound the clock forward 500 years, right, maybe that's our worst case. So, so there's nothing to worry about. You, you don't think that that's necessarily a, a, well, I don't a future worry about, we have to resist? I don't worry about any of it because uh, what I know is as a human being, I'm going to be dead uh, at some point in the future, and that's my lot in life. And so I may as well not worry about that outcome. One of the interesting things, of course, that's part of this whole construct is whether or not you can upload your consciousness, right? So while my physical body might be, be dead, in a world where the machines and the humans interact with each other, uh, is there a way to upload my consciousness and have some part of my sentient being survive uh, my physical death? I'd like to believe that that's possible, and I'd like to believe that that's an interesting construct. Um, I would tell you that my wife Amy has a very different view. Her view is that a hundred years from now she's going to be done with this thing, and or you know a hundred. Uh, I mean, we're in our late forties, so fifty years from now she'll have had enough of humanity, right? Like, uh, there's some people who like this notion of some kind of conceptual immortality, there's others who don't. I think that that's going to be one of the more complicated dynamics. And I'll come back to the Battlestar Galactica metaphor, right? If you, if you think about the notion of a resurrection ship and the Cylons being effectively immortal, and then the point at which the resurrection ship was destroyed and the Cylons were no longer immortal, and an individual Cylon and all of the experiences that individual Cylon had died when that Cylon died. How did that behavior change? And what does that impact have on behavior? I think that's going to be a very interesting challenge for us, um, you know, as, as a species over the next 40 or 50 years, because I think some of those options may start to become available to us. And do you behave differently in a world where your mortality is extended by hundreds of years? versus a situation where, you know, your lifetime really is capped at, you know, on the outside, maybe a hundred years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I was planning to, to bring this point a little bit later, but let's, let's grab it here because you brought it up. So uh, I've heard you say that before, that in the end we all die. So, and you've mentioned the, the quest about uh, the quest for immortality and the quest for mind uploading, but there's many different ways of accomplishing immortality. I've interviewed actually a bunch of people on my show before, like for example, Dr. Randall Kuna, who is working on whole brain emulation and who said on my show that uh, mind uploading is not science fiction anymore. Uh, Another person that I've interviewed is Dr. Aubrey de Grey. And one of the things he says that right now is what he says is that every 12 months, we extend life expectancy by three months due to the progress in medical science that we make. However, that pace of uh, progress in medical science is accelerating in its own right. 
So in, say, 10 years, it would be six months that we extend life expectancy for every 12 months. And at certain point, we come to the point which he calls longevity escape velocity, which means that every 12 months, we're able to extend life by 12 months, in which way, in which point we become to basically stay constant. But progress, in his opinion, wouldn't stop. It would continue. And then we'll eventually be able to turn down the biological clock. So you'll be able to be 50 or 100, uh, but you'll be biologically 25. So, so in other words, there's many different ways of, of getting at that, you know, pr promise of immortality. And, and what about that? Well, I think, I think it's uh, super, super fascinating and challenging, but not a foregone conclusion. So I think one of the challenges uh, in th these kinds of assertions is that until you reach that escape velocity, it's not guaranteed. But it's like anything else in entrepreneurship, right? It's never a guarantee. Of course. So, you know, we might find that there is a natural asymptote at six months and that you can't actually uh, exceed uh, increasing, you know, basically having a half-life expectancy dynamic, right? Or we may find a multiplier, which would take us from six months to 12 months, just like this. So, you know, the natural step function where all of a sudden there is no upward bound on, on, uh, on longevity. Uh, or, or mortality. So I think these things are all things that are discoverable or not, you know, within the time frame of the next 50 years, right? So I think we're in a place where the reason that these are so interesting and so chewy and so fun, but also challenging, is that we're in the midst of that cycle, right? A hundred years ago, I don't know what the exact life expectancy was, but it was like 40 or 50 or something. 48. Like. At 1900, was 48. Right. So it's doubled in the last uh, in the last hundred years. Yeah. You know, and so that's pretty powerful to think about that in the context of what's happened, especially with the acceleration uh, of much of this stuff. However, here's the challenge for human beings. Human beings have a really, really hard time thinking about geometric curves. And as humans, we love to think about uh, uh, linear curves. Mm -hmm. Most people don't really know what a logarithmic scale is. Mm -hmm. And most people, when they're focusing on things that are exponential, don't ever recognize of the flattening of that exponential curve, right? They assume the exponential forever. And you run into this problem over and over again, whether it's in physics or economics, uh, you know, in material science, uh, in the extrapolation of any sort of, uh, of, of financial phenomena. It's this conflict between the, lin the linear and the ge geometric mm -hmm. in terms of how we talk about these things. So do I believe de facto that we're going to go from three months to six months to 12 months to 24 months of life extension every every year. I don't know, right? We'll know in the future looking backwards. So to make the assertion that that's fact is invalid. To make the hypothesis that we're on that curve is completely valid. Mm -hmm. And to continue to experiment and to look for different ways to do things and to quest for it is totally valid. Mm -hmm. So. I guess I don't accept it as a given, but I love the hypothesis, and I think the hypothesis is one that's worth putting a huge amount of energy against. Mm. And, and there are people putting huge amounts of money for yep. a number of reasons uh, in it. But let me, let me go back to something that you're definitely an expert in, and that's making money. I've heard you say that your job, simply put, is basically to get a box with money from your investors and to return a bigger box with more money in it. Yep, that's my job. Very simple. So, so if it's so simple, then how is that job going to change in the next 10 or 20 years in the context of all those things that we just discussed? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you invest if you have no idea? Well, I don't worry about how the job is going to change. That was the question that you asked me. Um, okay, so poorly asked then. Well, I don't know. It was a good question. I think a lot of people ask that question. You know, how is how is venture capital going to change? How is the dynamics around innovation? How do you make money commercially? I get asked that question all the time. My answer is the same. I don't have a clue, right? What what I do know is that fundamentally, the way I've been successful historically at doing this is I look for areas that I feel like I have both deep knowledge and emotional attachment to. I don't have the same deep knowledge of, of many of the people that are working in the area, but I have deep enough knowledge to be able to feel comfortable and facile 
uh, with the technology, with the thing that's going on, with the constructs and concepts that are being discussed. Mm -hmm. I look for things that have very long arcs. I want them to have a 20, 30, 40 year arc. That doesn't mean that they're 20 years to commercialization, but I want to be involved in something that has a long term arc. I'm not interested in investing in chasing the latest new thing. Um, that, that's not what I like. That's not what my partners like. That's not what we do at Foundry Group. Um, but we're also not in the, in the business of funding fundamental research. We're, fund, we're funding the implementation of that fundamental research into commercial cycles with a long-term arc. I want to have enough domain knowledge so that I have a clue versus just reacting and responding to whatever people are talking about. I want a long-term arc, and then I want to partner with and invest in entrepreneurs who are completely and totally obsessed with what they're working on. They have to be completely obsessed with the product. Um, obsession with the product, by the way, does not cause us to invest. It's a precondition. If you're not obsessed with the product, we're not interested in investing. Mm -hmm. We have to have an emotional attachment to the product. If we don't care about what you're working on, it's not for us either. It has to be within these themes that we feel like we have real domain knowledge, where we have a clue. If we don't have a clue, why would you want us as an investor in you? Now, we don't have so much of a clue that we're the ones that are actually running the business and driving the business, but we have an opinion and we have a perspective and we can at least be additive to the conversation. I don't think any of that changes for me uh, in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Those are the characteristics of things that I'm looking for as an investor. Um, and then... In those cases, some of the things that we're going to invest in uh, are, are going to work hopefully wildly well. Uh, some of the things are going to be complete failures. And some of the things are going to look different in the end than what they looked at at that moment in time that we invested. And us working with the entrepreneurs and the leadership teams to help them navigate, because we're early investors, to help them navigate all of the different changes throughout the life of the company uh, is an important part of our role. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brad, let, let me ask you this. Let me roll the tape back a little bit and, 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 and try doing that, that by this question. Uh, Warren Buffett, for example, is very famous for not investing in tech companies. You're a tech uh, venture capitalist. So why technology? Why not stick to like classical bricks and mortar businesses? Well... I'm investing in technology because that's what turns me on. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in running uh, traditional brick-and-mortar businesses. I don't really care about them that much. That's not the thing that captures my imagination. And so, you know, in uh, my definition of myself and I think my partner's definition of what we do at Foundry Group is all around uh, uh, being involved in investing in and helping generate the next wave of innovation. We believe that there can be successful financial outcomes there. I think Warren Buffett would say there can be successful financial outcomes there. I think he would simply say it's not interesting to him. That's not where his expertise is. Or that's I think not actually if I remember his explanation was that it was very hard to judge the competitive advantage of the company you're investing with because it could literally change overnight. Whereas well, that, the other more that, traditional... That's Warren Buffett's explanation. He, if, if he says generically that it's impossible for an investor uh, to judge the competitive advantage of one entrepreneurial company over another, I, I would simply call bullshit on that. I, he may not be able to, but that's a, that's a business and strategy issue. That's understanding core technology. Somebody who's been living in and investing in uh, technology companies for a long time has a capacity for it. I would also say, being somebody who's a huge Warren Buffett fan, what I think he'd probably say is the margin of safety is not big enough. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So for, for him, you know, in terms of his philosophy of investing, there's less margin of, of safety. I buy that, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, I there's a lot, a lot of stuff that we invest in that fails. I'm wrong a lot. Yeah. The entrepreneurs we invest in often can't execute. Um, so that margin of safety is missing, but I think we get rewarded for that on the upside uh, in the situations that work well. Brad, you've mentioned the name of William Hurtling, who, by the way, for the benefit of our audience, I would mention is the person that connected us together and probably the main reason I had, why we... I had, for, I had forgotten that. That's cool. That's right. Yeah. Why, the whole reason why we're having this interview. So thank you, William, if you're watching. Uh, 
but so let me say thank you to him by asking one of the questions that he provided for us. He says, what provoked Brad's interest in artificial intelligence and robotics? That's what he wants to know. Sure. Those so, things. Um, so I went to MIT. I was an undergrad from 83 to 87, and I was a graduate student there until 1990 when they threw me out of a PhD program because I was a, a shitty PhD student. Um, I started a company by that point, and I was spending most of my time being an entrepreneur, and, and uh, uh, I really lost interest in, in, in the research that I was doing. Um, the, uh, in the 1980s at MIT uh, was kind of the, the creation and the rise of the Media Labs. The Media Lab at MIT got started in 1984, and prior to the Media Lab, um, much of the computer science activity at MIT was around laboratory for computer science and artificial intelligence and, you know, sort of the world of um, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert and sort of that first wave of, uh, uh, of society of the mind, I think, was, was the phrase that was often used. And I remember Minsky had a book called Society of the Mind that was yes. a seminal book back in the late 80s, or early 90s, maybe late 80s. Um, the Media Lab took a lot of that and then instantiated it in physical stuff. And so you started to have this intersection between this abstract theoretical computer science um, and this physical construct of actual physical machines, physical art, physical mu you know, actual music and technology, media and technology intersecting. Now, I was fascinated by that, but that was the time that I was at MIT, so I was surrounded by that. Many of my friends... Uh, who I live with were involved in different things there. A few of them are, are successful entrepreneurs um, uh, that answer the question. So one of them, for example, is Colin Angle, who's the CEO of iRobot. And Colin and I were fraternity brothers. He was a couple of years younger than me. And, you know, I remember Colin's fascination with robots uh, from the very beginning. Rodney Brooks, who is uh, his co-founder, was my, uh, we took a, everybody that did anything related to computer science, took a class called 6001, which was uh, essentially introduction to computer science, but it was a list, uh, scheme, you learn scheme and you really learn fundamental computer science principles. Rodney was my professor mm -hmm. uh, for that class. So I was sort of inculcated in that world. That's one side of it. The other side of it, uh, I'll use John Undercoffler as the example there, who's CEO of a company called Oblong that we're investors in. John was at the Media Lab all through this period of time and got his PhD there. Uh, he was a science and tech advisor for, for uh, Spielberg on Minority Report. So all of the Minority Report technology was actually instantiated and created. The, the, the stuff in the movie was uh, described by Spielberg but then instantiated by, by John, and he created all of those pieces. Um, John was a fraternity brother as well. So I sort of lived with these guys. Now, I, I didn't do computer science as an undergraduate. I, I had a vocational training in computer science. I started programming in high school. Um, I wrote a lot of software in college. I started my first company, which was a software uh, consulting business that, that became a successful business. And I, I always wrote a lot of code, but I was interested in um, business. Uh, I didn't, it wasn't called entrepreneurship then because nobody used the word entrepreneurship. But as an undergrad, I went to course 15 at MIT, which was management science which was essentially business school. Um, so I have an undergraduate degree from, manage, from, uh, from Sloan, from management school. But I spent a lot of time creating software and hanging out with these guys that were doing all kinds of different stuff in this context. I think the fact that all of those things collided for me in the 1980s is what caused my fascination with it. I was always much more interested in how we interacted with the machine than I was in raw computer science or I was in business. And the business and investing activity came from that fascination rather than I was a finance guy who found the area that he liked to do stuff in. Mm -hmm. So then William's follow-up second question might be perfect actually here, in which is, is there an intrinsic advantage that businesses with AI expertise have over those without it? Um... I don't know. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me ponder and react. I, I think that if I look at the trajectory of businesses I've been involved in since uh, the, the early 80s, um, 
And I think about some of the linkages to those businesses, right? I've been involved in lots of entrepreneurial companies, but I've also been involved in some larger companies. Um, my uncle is a guy named Charlie Feld who uh, became well-known as one of the, the most notable CIOs in the world uh, and then started his own company in the 1990s um, that I ended up investing in and we worked very closely together where he basically came into very large organizations um, uh, essentially as the outsourced CIO with a small team of people. They kept the two or three or 4,000 person engineering organization, um, but they changed the leadership. And, you know, these were companies like Delta Airlines and Burlington Northern, very, very large uh, mm-hmm. uh, businesses. And I learned a lot from that experience because really what happened was IT and the notion of information systems and information technology shifted from being uh, a functional resource and a functional unit within those businesses to part of the strategic imperative of those companies. And for the best ones, the technology and the IT resource became an embedded part of that strategic imperative. Now, I wouldn't call any of that AI, but if you take that and extrapolate it out and the notion that the information systems within the business, when they become part of the strategic imperative, when that goes up a level and it actually starts to look like AI, and you think about today's contemporary businesses and businesses that actually can operate on real-time cycles, whether they're startups or large businesses, and you apply the notion of AI to that, you, uh, you almost have to believe that there's a meaningful advantage. And, you know, do you want to talk about the algorithms in places, you know, like companies like Google as AI at this stage? I, I, I feel sketchy to go that far. They but, see themselves as AI company. No, I understand, but that's all about definition of AI, right? I mean, I, I will tell you that my Gmail is not getting smarter on a continual basis. So, like, it's one thing to, to, to say what it is. It's a whole other thing to get there. Now, my, you know, my Nexus, my Nexus 5, um, uh, I would say, you know, the, the voice recognition on my Nexus 5 and the way that my Nexus 5 starts to sense location and starts to give stuff to me, um, sure, I can accept that that's AI-like. But man, it's version 0.01. I mean, that it's shitty, right? <laughs> but but it's on a trajectory where you could see it not be shitty really fast, mm-hmm. right? It's no longer hard to imagine where it's going to go. It's getting there fast. Um, so, I, I, you know, when I come full circle with the rambling, uh, my answer has to be, uh, of course. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. You said that uh, one of the things uh, is that you have to be excited and passionate about what you do. So what are the most exciting companies that you deal with right now? Well, uh, you know, we, in my world, um, personally, in the last, uh, last year, the stuff I've been most obsessed about, uh, and I would say across the various themes that we invest in, the human-computer interaction theme, which is one of them, is the one I'm most into personally, um, uh, I, I loved working with MakerBot. Um, we were early investors in MakerBot. They got bought um, uh, middle of last year by uh, a large public company called Stratasys. Um, but I think when, when we invested in MakerBot, they were you know, 30 people, although 20, 25 of them were people who were putting together kits of, of the Thingomatic. And you know, when they were acquired, there were you know, 250 people or so growing very, very rapidly. The notion of 3D printing and being able to you know, convert uh, uh, atoms, you know, atoms into bits, or sorry, bits into atoms across any geographic spread. Completely fascinating to me. Um, I love Fitbit. I'm an investor in Fitbit from very early on. Um, that company has grown at an incredible pace. Uh, we characterize that as, as essentially human instrumentation and the notion of us as humans instrumenting ourselves. I view the current generation of that technology is version 0.1. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very, very, you know, very specific sensors. Um, the sensors are uh, very powerful in the context, especially of what you can extrapolate from the data the sensors generate. And as you think about the evolution of sensors on a very rapid spectrum, it's an incredibly interesting area. So that's been incredibly, incredibly fun. Oblong, which I mentioned earlier, um, they've got a product called Mezzanine that transforms the way that uh, we, we interact in collaboration, video conferencing environments. It really allows somebody like me to not have to travel anymore, mm-hmm. to be able to interact 
it, it takes it from the level of video conferencing that we're doing here where it's just screen to screen and we're talking to each other to a full collaborative immersive environment. Um, super, super fun company. On top of that, they have a gestural operating system. So all of the you know, touch is essentially three-dimensional gesture with the Z axis being zeroed out, right? So uh, we're getting very used to touch. We've been talking about gesture for a long time. And again, going back to Minority Report, the whole notion of the gestural uh, UI, which John was really the, the creator of much of the original technology when he was at the Media Lab in the 1990s around spatial operating environments and gestural UIs, um, you know, that's all coming real and fast to us in terms of how we inter interact with computers. The whole idea that we're in our car and we can't use a gestural interface in our car just makes me want to scream. Right? <laughs> you know, like, why am I twisting knobs and, and having to press stuff? And, and where is my heads-up display anyway? Why do I have, like, a screen in the middle of the console and a, a separate dashboard versus a heads-up display on my dashboard that I can just interact with? That's all coming fast. So these sorts of, of, of user interaction, user engagement models, totally fascinating. Uh -huh. The last thing I'd mention that's been really interesting as an investment, we're an investor in, in a handful of, of companies that do robotics-related stuff. Um, the one that's growing extremely fast is one called Robotics. They make a product called Sphero. Oh yeah, is, right. It's 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 a robotic ball that you control with a smartphone. And when we first invested, people were like, uh, "Why the hell would you invest in a robotic ball that you control with a smartphone?" And my answer, tongue in cheek, was, "Because it's a robotic ball you can control with a smartphone." I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> you know, it it's obviously an incredibly difficult problem because we don't have a plethora of robotic balls controlled with smartphones. Right? State of the art for that stuff is kind of these shitty RC controlled toys from three or four years ago. Now we're getting, uh, you know, uh, uh, things like parrot drones and we're investors in 3D robotics that are, you know, sort of higher end programmable drones. But this notion of what you can do in a form factor like a ball or a robot that's, they just came out with a new product called a, a 2B, it's a play on the word tube that looks like a more of a, a tube than a ball. The kinds of stuff you can do interactively with these, the sensors you can put on them, the software that you can do on the phone that has real-time interaction with the robot and the places where, where you can take that are unbelievably fascinating. So that's a, another really fun company to be involved in. What's your take on Bitcoin? I think Bitcoin is an awesome protocol. Um, I, I think we're in the, you know, the phase of Bitcoin where nobody really, where the, the mainstream doesn't understand it very well because the mainstream thinks of it as a currency replacement. Um, but it's really a technology protocol, and at the layer at which it's technology protocol, I think the, the number of different things that can be done with it uh, are, are quite dramatic. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, I was aware of Bitcoin uh, a number of years ago, and I didn't really make the right mental mapping to it early on um, as, as a technology protocol for what it was. So we don't have any investments directly. Uh, in, in Bitcoin related stuff, we have some indirect investments and, uh, you know, through other funds that we're invested in and, and some other things that we've done. But uh, I think it's really, really uh, profound and important. And it also plays in an area that I think is one that confuses a lot of people. I talk continually about the collision between hierarchies and networks. Mm -hmm. And I think in 2008 in the financial crisis, the hierarchical norm that we have been operating under for a very long time in the context of business and society, military, religion. The monetary right? system. Monetary system. Uh, in 2008, that hierarchical control dynamic um, was, was shaken to its core. The notion of networks has been growing very rapidly over the last decade because of social networks and human beings' understanding of what a network and network theory is. Mm -hmm. if you go back 30 years ago when people talked about networks and network theory, it was abstract. It was like the, the Marvin Minsky Society of the Mind abstraction versus what people talk about today. Um, I believe for a long time that networks were rapidly increasing in importance and hierarchies were decreasing and that there was a crossover point. That crossover point in my, my mind happened in the financial crisis in 2008. We will always have hierarchies. They're not going away. But the importance of networks and the functioning of how networks work is much, much more powerful today and much more accessible to a broad set of people today. Bitcoin is a good example of the instantiation of that network with regard to payment um, in, in terms of what people are experiencing with Bitcoin right now. Um, you know, we'll watch very quickly as the hierarchies try to get control of Bitcoin. 
Um, and again, that misses the point of what Bitcoin really is because it's a protocol rather than just a currency. Mm -hmm. Brad, let me ask you, are there any fundamental misperceptions or confusion uh, that you tend to encounter about important aspects of your work and what you tend to do? All the time. Some, and something that you want to clarify it and clear up? No, I'm not sure I care about clarifying it. Um, uh, I, I think people, I think the biggest mistake people make in the context of venture capitalists is to think of it as a single archetype, to think of a venture capitalist as a singular archetype. Um, I describe VCs as Dungeons and Dragons characters, <laughs> right? You've got elves and you've got mages and you've got wizards and you've got orcs and you've got dwarves, right? And each of them have different experience levels. Which one are you? You get to decide. <laughs> um, a venture capital firm is often a collection of different types of D&D &D characters. Uh, and I'll answer the question in a sec, in, in a less tongue-in-cheek way in terms of what I aspire to be, not what I think I am, but what mm -hmm. I aspire to be. Um, the, uh, this notion of multiple archetypes and firms being a collection of different archetypes is a very important thing for entrepreneurs to, to understand. Um, because the second that you start thinking about VC as a singular archetype, you miss, you miss the point of what uh, is good and bad about venture capital. There, like, venture ca like everything else in the world, there are some amazing individual VCs and there are some horrible VCs and there are a lot in the middle. And the same is true of firms. There are some great firms and there are some horrible firms and there's a bunch in the middle. And really as an entrepreneur, it's not a linear curve either because it's a mapping to you as a firm. There's a lot of individual entrepreneurs who we wouldn't be a good investor for. And there's other investors who would be terrible for certain entrepreneurs. So getting that match across multiple archetypes in different contexts is actually a nuance that I think a lot of, a lot of people miss. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you asked me directly, what am I? I, I, I actually have a simpler uh, way of thinking about what I aspire to be. Um, uh, I, I have a couple of heroes. One of my heroes is Yoda. And <laughs> I, I love the uh, dynamic of what Yoda uh, was, is, and became throughout his lifetime. And the role that I'm playing at this stage in my life is a role that has some characteristics that are Yoda-like, some that aren't. And when I think about what I aspire to, more of it is what we generally think of when we think of Yoda uh, in the context of, uh, uh, of Star Wars. Recently, you know, Yoda has been replaced recently by Gandalf. And, you know, when I read, uh, you know, I was a huge Tolkien fan when I was a kid. Uh, my favorite character in Tolkien has always been Gandalf. And so, you know, the, the, the instantiation of the, the wizard. Well, the experience, it's not even the wizard so much and, and the magic around it. It's the these people kicked ass when they were in their prime. And when they got older, they let other people kick ass and they helped them. Uh -huh. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, I did well as an entrepreneur and was successful. I play a supporting role to the entrepreneur as a VC. I do not play the lead role. Uh -huh. I, I love to think of myself as a really effective supporter who also has, you know, the skill and talent to kick ass when I need to. Uh, Brad, we're approaching the end of our interview here. I have another three or four questions. Uh, let me just ask you, what about capitalism? You've mentioned the profound changes that you thought happened in 2008 from hierarchical society and organization to a networked one. How about the socioeconomic system that we live in, capitalism? Many people such as uh, the Venus Project, the Zeitgeist movement, uh, Karl Marx in the 19th century, they claim that environmental degradation, wars, pretty much all the evils of society stem from capitalism. And also they say that capitalism is just like all other systems. It is born, it would live, and it would eventually die. Do you think that that's the case? And do you think we are, if, if you do, do you think we are approaching the end of capitalism and perhaps the beginning of something new? Um, I'll, I don't think we're approaching the end of capitalism as a construct, so I feel pretty strongly about that. I don't, 
I don't have a deep response philosophically to, uh, you know, to, to, to the question. I think anytime, uh, anytime I wander into a room where Karl Marx is being discussed, probably the healthiest thing for me to do is turn around and walk out of the room. Uh, because other than, other than the equivalent of a drunken or stone rant that you'd have at two o'clock in the morning in college, uh, I don't, I don't feel like I have any deep, uh, deep wisdom there. How about, uh, do you have anything to say about the so-called uh, phenomenon of technological unemployment? Yeah, I, th- I, I For do example, the-, the fact that the new companies, y- your goal is to spur innovation and stuff, but let's, let's look at Facebook or Google or, I mean, Google is not so much of an example, but let's say Instagram, right? The billion dollar company with 11 people, whereas previously a billion dollar company would provide, you know, for maybe a hundred thousand employees. Well, it's two things to, to recognize there. I do have opinions about that. One is uh, Instagram wasn't a billion-dollar company. Instagram was acquired for a billion dollars. So there's a difference between uh, the value of a company in the markets and what that company is actually generating in terms of economic resources. Mm-hmm. The other thing to recognize is that Instagram was bought for 1% of Facebook. So there's a different type of math uh, that happens when you're thinking about acquisitions, which is how much dilution is it willing? Am I willing to take to get this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an allocation of capital discussion that you know goes on endlessly. I think the the it was interesting, you know, where you quickly moved off Google as 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 an example. Um, I mean, Go- they do have like thirty, I don't know, thirty or forty thousand people and growing. Right. So Google is Google was born in 1999, right? Yeah. So Google's 15 years old, 14 years old, whatever it is. Facebook was born in 2004, really 2004, 2005, so it's younger. You don't think that in five years Facebook's going to have tens of thousands of employees? It's possible. It's possible. Oh, yeah. Why, why wouldn't it? But, but the future, I mean, in a way, those two companies are sort of in the crevice between the new and the old. The, most of the new startups, they're like a few dozen people at the most, uh, aren't they? Really? I, I know a whole bunch of companies that have hundreds of thousands of employees already. Um, let's see, Twitter has a couple of thousand employees already. Um, oh, gee, let's see, MakerBot, I think they're up to 600 people just within MakerBot. Um, I don't even know how many people Stratasys has. Uh, you know, so, so there's this illusion that companies become wildly successful and stop at 10 or 15 or 20 people. That's an illusion. That's not mm-hmm. fact. Um, now, there's a second issue, which is that the job dynamics have shifted quite significantly, right? The notion of what labor is uh, in these companies is quite different than what the notion of what labor was in the 1950s and different, again, what labor was in the, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution, late 1800s, early 1900s. I think that that is a really profound problem for society because that shift in labor very much has to do with the separation between uh, uh, intellectual work and non-intellectual work, physical labor, intellectual labor, the sort of classic problem that was being talked about in the productivity crisis of the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, Interestingly, even into the 1990s, people were talking about how information technology wasn't improving productivity. Um, And today, that that mythology has been blown off the face of this planet. Information dramatically changes the way uh, that people work and that labor works and, and the hierarchy of labor. Now, that doesn't mean that physical labor goes away, um, but it does have very broad societal problems that we're wrestling with, uh, and that I don't think we're anywhere close to understanding, uh, certainly in the United States, but around the world. And I think it's going to be more complicated in the next decade, not less complicated. You think about the large number of things that humans still do um, that are part of the labor economy that, you know, really we're getting pretty close to machines doing. Um, you know, and they can be as trivial as, as washing windows. Um, or driving taxi cabs or delivering mail. I mean, why, why, do we need, uh, why do we need people actually driving taxi cabs a decade from now? Or why do we need mail? Last time I checked, the only mail I get is mail I don't want. Physical, <laughs> right? So, you know, all of these, again, these things are things that we're wrestling with. And this next 20, 30, 40 years, I think, are the... The, the, uh, a transitional phenomena where, where 20 years ago the enabling technology was there. We could talk about the future, but we couldn't live in the future, right? We, we could watch the Jetsons, but we couldn't experience it. 
we're start you know other than space travel uh we're experiencing most of those things now and uh you know they they are shaking a lot of the ways we think as human beings quite substantially and you know anyone in in a first world country can very quickly get a perspective on it by going to a third world country and seeing the difference and seeing some of the things that are actually skips, right? Things that we went through, for example, in the United States in, in terms of infrastructure uh, and infrastructure build that some countries are merely skipping because they don't have to. You know, the, 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 the mobile infrastructure is a great example Africa, of that. Yes. Right? Where, you know, there's no landlines and there's not huge amounts of industrialization as a result of landlines and roads and railroads and things like that because they just skipped over a whole technological and infrastructure generation. Um, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of that build, and there's good things about that and bad things about that. I'm not a. Uh, I, I don't. I don't profess to have any answers on any of these dimensions, uh, from my own frame of reference. Um, but I do feel like it's a mistake as as a society and as humans to try to resist the change. Right. This is the resistance is futile metaphor that uh, or cliche that gets used every now and then. It's really true. Like, you know, we can try to stop it, but why? Why not embrace it and try to figure out what it means, even though it's messy? Brad, the last two questions that I always ask of my guests on the show uh, go like this. Where can people, first of all, where can people find more about you and your work? Uh, I blog er almost every day at feld.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at bfeld. Uh, my email address is brad at feld.com. I try to respond to pretty much everything I get. Um, I've written a bunch of books. So if you go on Amazon and type Brad Feld, you can pick up some of the books that I've written. And then foundrygroup.com is the venture capital firm that I'm a partner in. And techstars.com is the accelerator that I help start that I'm very active in. That's fantastic. So, Brad, the last question that I want to ask you is this. Is there a final message, the most important thing that you want for our viewers to take away from this one-hour conversation with you today? Be optimistic. Um, I, I think as, a, as we look forward into the future, I think if we're optimistic and we try lots of things and recognize that lots of things will fail, lots of things that will be messy, lots of things will be uncomfortable, uh, lots of things will generate fear. Uh, there will be lots of mistakes. I think if we stay fundamentally optimistic and approach uh, technological innovation and the movement of all of this stuff through society in a positive way, uh, I think we'll end up in a much better place. We'll have much more interesting outcomes. Um, I think that people who are pessimistic, people who are fearful of failure, people who resist trying new things, people who are afraid of change, uh, I think it's going to be a very difficult uh, 20 or 30 years. Brad Felt, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure.